0: Six, five, four, three, two, one. How about we
1: do it again? Six, Six seven, five, four, four, three, two, one. And they got okay. I'm sorry, I think I've bored. it. Okay, let's try one more time. I definitely. What can we do? Make him reveal. What him we do? Six, six. Six. Five. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Hello and welcome to another edition of Rank and Review. I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And this episode, I'll be joined by Mr. Jason Dubray, he of the Shelf-Shedding Movie Podcast, to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, the guy who played Brandt in The Big Lebowski? Oh, and one of the greatest actors of our lifetime, possibly, who unfortunately was taken to us, from us, far too early... Yeah, that's the subject of this. Uh, This is the second tribute episode that Jason and I have done together. And I think I picked a pretty good swath of the work from Philip Seymour Hoffman. But uh, I would love to hear feedback. If you guys have anything you'd like to say about the podcast or about Philip Seymour Hoffman, you can write me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca because I'm up in Canada. And if you need something else to put in your ears in the 2 week gap between episodes, do check out The Shelf-Shedding Movie Show. It is worth your time. Uh, Jason knows what he's talking about and he puts a lot of work into his show, so he deserves an audience. Now let's talk about Philip Seymour. Mr. Jason DuBray of the Shelf-Shedding Movie Show is back on the podcast. Thank you so much. We are here to talk about a fantastic actor taken from us too soon named Philip Seymour Hoffman. This is not the first tribute show that you and I have done. We talked about Robin Williams as well. And just like with Robin Williams, I looked at the IMD page. And unlike Robin Williams, the rate to good to bad movies here are much stronger and no disrespect to robin williams but he did produce quite a lot of you know c minus and and lower (laughs) affairs but what i noticed looking at his filmography is a lot of either low status broken outsider for lack of a better word loser characters Uh played with enthusiasm and love like a lot of times you'll see it and it's an honest betrayal. It's an unsympathetic betrayal. But for some reason, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, these people seem real. There's uh, this movie Love Lisa, where he plays this guy who gets addicted to huffing gasoline. Mm-hmm. And that backloads him into getting into like miniature cars and planes mm-hmm. because that's where he's getting the fuel that he's huffing. Mm-hmm. And there's a description, sounds like a terrible experience, but. Because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's an interesting movie. Yeah. And his career is full of roles like that. Because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, the movie's interesting. And there's a Canadian produced one called Owning Mahoney, where he plays a yes. compulsive gambler. He's good in that. And again, an impenetrable, difficult character. And the movie doesn't give you a lot to like solve the riddle, but somehow Philip Seymour Hoffman is so fully there that it works. I, the first time I remember noticing him, I was working at the radio station when I was in uh, uh, high school and uh, I did the premiere for Scent of a Woman. And he was in Scent of a Woman. He was one of the sleaziest of the kids that was screwing over the main character in that movie. And I noticed him. Like, he talked a lot with his hands and he was clearly making choices as an actor and he stood out, didn't know his name. And then I'd watch Twister again, for whatever reason, and I was like, oh, it's that guy again. Mm-hmm. It's that guy, who's that? It was Boogie Nights, I think. Uh, well, a combination of Boogie Nights and Almost Famous, I'm not sure where they came along timeline. Yeah. But two high-profile supporting roles that made Philip Seymour Hoffman, the entity, lock into my mind. And I have a vast amount of respect for him, and that never changed. That never changed. Even though he will do things like Along Came Polly and The Hunger Games, probably for easy cash, he doesn't suck in them. Mm -hmm. He is a workman, was, unfortunately, a really solid workman character actor in an enviable position. Um, Because he's not a movie star look, right? He's not a marquee face or figure. His silhouette looks a lot more like Alfred Hitchcock than Tom Cruise, right? But he's so good that he is a leading man. He is a star. So, I'm a fan. Where does Jason DeGray land? (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, he he built up to being a leading man from those roles. And, uh, yeah, I I, I don't want to go, there's so many different directions to go, but Scent of a Woman was the first time I noticed him as well. Uh, And I noticed a lot of people. That was an important movie to me when I saw it at the time because I was still pretty young. And it was just, to me, an amazing movie that I watched over and over again. And of the supporting characters, he really he really stuck out. Um, I think one of my being a more immature moviegoer at that time, I think he was so good at playing characters that I didn't really appreciate him until late '90s. Because he's like he's like he's this entitled rich guy in that movie, and like he's just horrible. I I don't like I don't like that guy. Because he he played the role so effectively and then I would see him in in some other things and I'm like, oh, I don't like like that guy, but he keeps showing up and stuff and he's kind of interesting and he built his way there. It was actually 99 was where I started to really go like, whoa, like talented Mr. Ripley and Magnolia, which we talked about. Uh, I think he was in some other movies that year. I think it was the next year, was almost famous. And it was a couple of years after Boogie Nights. Where He had some good scenes, but I, I don't think I realized how great a performance that was in Boogie Nights until I went back and and looked at it again because I was wowed by so many other things in that film. But uh, very important actor. I, I keep thinking of, like, there's the other Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman, who's had this great long story career. And that's where Philip Seymour Hoffman was kind of taking that um torch for the next generation and he was a great actor. Um uh, one of the things we'll we might end up talking about and since he worked with at least one of these actors but um that that year when he won for Capote, uh there were three just amazing performances to me. Um and uh Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain Joaquin Phoenix was in the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line, right. and and then Capote, Philip Seymour-Hoffman won. If you told me, like, um, of those three, somebody that we would die the way that the death happened, I would have thought Joaquin Phoenix is probably the number one candidate for that. So as I was saying, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, what, he seemed like the most volatile guy at the time, and he's still with us, like... Producing one interesting performance after another, and we're going to be talking about one of his interesting performances sure. that he did with Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, in this show here. It it never struck me, and even after Heath Ledger went, that it seemed like Philip Seymour Hoffman, well, that's a, he's a solid guy. Something like that would never happen. Um, but I, I, I have Brian Cox's book, uh, my autobiography. It's, it's, it's called Putting the Rabbit in... The Hat, I recommend it highly. I picked it up in Ireland and 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 read it quite quickly. And he had a, a little piece on a, like actors who have died too young and a little thing on, on Philip Seymour Hoffman. And there's some stuff I, I kind of didn't necessarily know about Hoffman that might play into what kind of led him in to the tragic death that he had. But <clears throat> I'll, I'll just read this. There has unfortunately and unavoidably been a great deal of death in this book, Um, the product partly of my own longevity, but also the fact that my profession tends to produce what you might call extreme and obsessive characters. Philip Seymour Hoffman, for example, with whom I worked on 25th Hour for Spike Lee in 2002, he was the sweetest, funniest guy, but he had a darkness to him. It's a matter of public knowledge that he had abused drugs and alcohol during his college years until at 22, he went into rehab and stayed sober for 23 years. Clearly, he relapsed. Some years after the Spike Lee film, I did a couple of workshops with him. Whether he was back on the drugs then or not, I couldn't say. Just that he was very edgy and argumentative. Not at all the delightful man I had met before. Uh, I want to contrast this with um, uh, a movie that we're going to be talking about on my show, *The Addiction*. And in the supplemental materials, uh, Christopher Walken is is interviewed, and this was shortly after the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, and Walken was just broken up about this, and he said, I, "I don't know how this happened. Like he was he was such a lovely man, and he didn't he didn't party, and he 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 wouldn't even take a drink. Um, and so he was trying to reconcile." how how this guy could have ended up overdosing on heroin, but sounds to me that he relapsed and he probably was very secretive about it and then went too far. And it's a shame because I, I think of... He, he produced such great work in a short period of time, but what else could we have had for the next... As Watkins says, for the next 40 years, you could have amazing...
1: Performances
2: and that change cinema
1: i 'm of the mind that there was really nothing the guy couldn't do like um yeah. it's hard not to think because of the overdose and sort of the darkness of his end that that might not have been part of why he was drawn to characters that had that sort of darkness in them. Mm-hmm. One of his early successes, or again, early big roles that I remember him in, was in a movie that everybody likes way more than I do called Happiness.
2: <laughs> I was going to mention Happiness. That's yeah. uh, uh
1: Todd Sollins just yeah. generally, as a, as a rule, is kind of hard cheese for me. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, again, his commitment to this terrible, pathetic, awful human being, but he gives him a thousand percent. He yeah. gives him everything. Is it's a fully lived in character because that's what every character kind of deserves. And a lot of people would read the guy's a loser put on kind of a schlubby walk and a schlubby voice. Mm-hmm. And that would be that not Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And he has a whole catalog of losers. Even Lester Bangs, who's like a celebrated, uh, like movie journalist at his heart. He is a pathetic dweeby nerd, like mm-hmm. a very lovable pathetic dweeby nerd, but that is very much there. And it's in the performance. We still like him, mm-hmm. but we see him, warts and all. He's, and,
2: he he even says, "I'm not cool." Yeah. In almost famous. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But like, he still thinks he's cool on some level. Yeah. He's above. Yeah, everything. I can't just be standing here hanging out with my many fans, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So. Yeah. Uh, I think our point has been made. I think we're both big fans, yes. and we are like everyone else, heartbroken and over we're g- lost.
2: And we're gonna be talking about. Six completely different human beings Embodied by the same man Yeah And uh, because he was so
1: immensely talented uh, A lot of great directors worked with him So I think you'll notice that uh, A lot of these directors are actually familiar Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else you want to say about the man? I
2: I will give a warning that um, uh, This group of movies I am a little bit more mixed on the movies themselves Not to It's kind of like the Robin Williams episode for me High, high respect for Robin Williams. High respect for Philip Seymour Hoffman. But my reviews may come across as a bit negative for some of these. Okay. Um, but again, I still want to make sure that at the center of this, we're celebrating um, this this great actor who left us too soon.
1: Well, I think what's going to be coming up in this list a lot for me, maybe for you as well, is this strange line between a movie that is like truly great and a movie that is interesting, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of well, there's a lot to be said about this movie, but can you recommend it, or is it entertaining? Like, what are you getting from it? Um, sometimes I'm a big champion of, of things that are original, but original also sometimes. Sometimes breaking new ground is, you know, dangerous. Mm-hmm. But um, we're going to talk about State in Maine from writer-director David Mamet. We're talking talk about Pirate Radio, which is also known as The Boat That Rocked, um, from, oh my goodness. Richard Curtis, I believe. Richard Curtis, thank you. And he's responsible for, like, Notting Hill and and Love Actually, which is another movie that everybody seems to like more than I do. Uh, his Oscar-winning role in Capote. Man, I can't read anything it's anymore. Bennett, Bennett Miller America. is the director of that. Thank one. you. Charlie Kaufman's directorial de- blue, debut in Synecdoche, New Synecdoche,
2: York? New York, which I someone calls. call it's an adult you It's an adult you. Uh,
1: Jason and I tend to talk a lot about Paul Thomas Anderson, so why should <laughs> this episode be any different? So this is the not anyway about scientology <clears throat> motion picture called The Master. And we're going to finish with an animated movie called Mary and Max because, yeah, I know it's just a, a voice performance, but I think people underrate the importance of a voice performance, and uh, I don't think that movie's been seen enough, so... Those are the six Philip Seymour Hoffman movies we're going to talk. Thank you so much for being here. You treat me like a child. What's your problem?
2: She doesn't want to bear her breasts. Why are we paying her $3 million? They know what her breasts look like. No, they can draw them from memory. <laughs> it takes all kinds. Shouldn't you be in school? It's night. You know... She could be in the movie. She could. No, 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 no,
0: Everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> the whole town's been been warped by the, by, by the presence of the movie company. Why don't you sue me in the world court? How are you getting on with these fine people? I want them thrown in jail. You're going to jail. I didn't know it was illegal. Can we just try to keep our pants buttoned and
1: get out of this town in one piece?
2: Don't you, don't, don't, don't. Because I want to tell you something. And I think you know what I mean.
1: I have a strange relationship with David Mamet in that, like, I discovered him in my university days. Uh, I did a stage performance of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and he's a fun writer to perform. He's, you know, He gives you all these sort of zingers and all these catchphrases, and uh, there's a lot of overplaying, then cutting each other off, and it's exciting to perform. But over the years, I have sort of slowly come to the point that I think that the reason actors are drawn to Mamet so much is because it's fun to perform. Sometimes more so than it is to actually watch. Um, I consider State and Maine lesser Mamet for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, his story of his, you know, initiation into Hollywood. I believe the first two screenplays he did was the remake of uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange okay. and The Verdict which I believe was Oscar nominated
2: yeah, that was a good screenplay <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh, you know he's had hot cold and all everything in between but he's been David Mamet for an awfully long time and this idea that he is the struggling put upon writer, right, that, that like the Philip Silver Kaufman character plays here in State in Maine, you would think that this is who we want to identify with this is who Mamet is going to most identify with The story concerns a Hollywood production coming to a small town and corrupting it. Nothing new or anything about that. Where the movie shines is with its dialogue and the mammoth actors from his clubhouse delivering the mammoth dialogue. Mm -hmm. William H. Macy knows what the fuck he's doing. Mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin knows what the fuck he's doing. Mm -hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman definitely knows what he's doing, and he's in the center of this sort of mammoth-verse thing, but... There's not much edge to this movie, uh, especially considering it's David Mamet, and it seems inauthentic to me, since his experience with Hollywood has been completely complete success, embrace, if anything, David Mamet's the tyrant on any given set. Uh-huh. So I just find it a little disingenuous, this whole thing. And the movie hangs, I think, on a romance between Philip Seymour Hoffman, an amazing actor, uh-huh. and Rebecca Pigeon. A human being.
2: His wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: David Mamet's wife. He was also previously married to Lizzie Krause, and they both did stage work with him, and he basically told them to drain all the emotion out of their acting. And as a result, I don't think either of them are much of an actress. I genuinely feel... Uh, Lizzie Krause has had her moments. But, uh, I don't know, Rebecca Pigeon is just icy cold. Like, she played a character in The Spanish Prisoner,
2: who yeah, is I, I like her in that.
1: completely ice cold. And in this movie, she's supposed to be playing the heart of the mm-hmm. movie. The heart of this small town. And really, I felt almost no difference in her countenance between the two roles. The romance at the heart of the movie doesn't work. So, the heart of the movie doesn't work. So, what we have to keep us entertained, as far as I'm concerned, is the mammoth actors delivering the mammoth dialogue. <laughs> and that does does deliver. Like, this is not a negative review. This is me grading on the mammoth curve okay okay? so it's all right it's like mid-grade mid-tier mammoth it's not lazy and just trying to piss people off but it doesn't really have anything too on much on its mind you know the idea of hollywood corrupting a small town or the small town you know trading off on hollywood is not new and uh nothing is particularly interestingly elevated in this particular screenplay so says myself but what does jason du say
2: yeah, and, and, and I'm glad you say it's a recommendation, but you're, and, and it's good to be hard on David Mamet. I mean, you know, yeah. this is this point, he's very experienced. Uh, <clears throat> I might argue that he's partially that writer, but he's also partially William H. Macy as the director, and he's a lot David Pamer as that producer. Right. Right. Um, and so I think they're all part of him a bit and he's kind of doing a spectrum of his hollywood experience but at some point he was the low man on the totem pole but it had been a long time so i don't think i think it may be reading into it that he's all philip seymour hoffman but yeah philip seymour hoffman's a central character in the piece for sure i i, I don't think I, I i get what you're saying about Re- rebecca pigeon i i like her more than you do it sounds like um She's not certainly not the screen actor that the like the A-level members of the cast are, but I I I went along with it because the other piece is that she's supposed to be, you know, from this her entire life has been in this this small town, which is a bit of a, you know, um, she'll marry the the only guy who's kind of available type of thing, and that her life is set out for her, and she's looking for something more. So she's not as charismatic or as dynamic as as some of the other characters, and yeah. I, and I get that. But yeah, pairing her with F- Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah, that she's in the deep end of the pool. And but I she was also like with it. like Steve Martin in uh, Spanish Prisoner and uh, Campbell Scott, and I, I I liked her in that too. So I don't know if I'm maybe I'm a little bit more forgiving of that that performance, but which it, helps. It might
1: be just too that she's working against a lot of people who have been mm-hmm. doing the mammoth thing for a lot more yeah. years than she is and like hell if I was thrown in the midst of this cast like uh it, I would be you know a little bit at sea I yeah. think you know you'd be intimidated the charisma
2: of Baldwin there yeah. um uh but I uh the thing I would say is you know my my thoughts on our on it is it's very gentle David Mammoth. yeah um this is like frank Capra By his standards. Uh, by his standards, like Frank Capra would have a few less F words, I guess, but this wasn't Glengarry Glenn Ross or American Buffalo, which have a real edge and, and nastiness to them. There isn't that. There are some characters that aren't like the nicest people that you ever meet and are arrogant and that kind of thing. But I I, I thought it found it the movie to be charming and cutesy. Um, and this is if I was to like show a David Mamet piece to, uh, you know, to just, like, somebody who doesn't like darker material. This is maybe the one I think I could show. And, and people would get enough entertainment out of it. It's not that deep a film. No. Really? It, but it's
1: not confronting. It's not Oleana or Glenn No, no or anything like that. No. It's not going to leave you shaken or angry or anything like that. No.
2: I mean, you know, uh, good doesn't necessarily triumph over evil. I don't know if this movie would be... Uh, produced by a studio right now because in some ways, given like the Me Too movement and everything... Actually, um, it
1: actually hasn't aged particularly well in a few strengths of the plot. The Alec Baldwin being a a, a pedophile... Yeah, he likes... 14 year olds. He likes,
2: you know, Yeah. yeah, like Bama takes it to that extreme. It isn't you know, just barely 18. Macy has that thing, we
1: can't do 14 year olds, get him half a 28 year old. Right? Like... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, That that uh, early uh, on,
2: that's not going to read well, you <laughs> know. No.
1: Even um, what's her name from Sex and the City? Uh, yes, Sarah Jessica Sarah Parker. Jessica Parker getting uh, petitioning for more money to, for her nudes. Yeah, but uh, posing the argument as it being about her artistic integrity and in all of this. Uh, I believe when State in Maine was being made, we were making fun of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, that sort of attitude, right? Mm, Yeah. Whereas, you know, having me in your movie is... And there being nudity in the movie is a big part of the money. So, why not? Why not use that as a... If Mm. they're insisting on the nudity, why not insist on getting a little bit extra? And somehow she
2: found, I don't know, between films... Religion or something, and that was her objection to it. But then, I think two months later, she'll find something else. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: everybody, especially the cast, are shallow as piss on a plate, and I mm-hmm. get that. Yeah. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah. And uh, the, the town starts off kind of sweet, but actually feels like it's slowly getting corrupted by Hollywood. It is, yeah. and Hollywood isn't necessarily being you know having the same effect on it as the small town is on, uh, yeah. on them
2: so I, I like those two I, I don't know who the actors are or where i got them those two guys in the coffee shop that are commenting on what's going on it reminded me of something like out of uh, robert altman movie yeah uh like um uh, cookie's fortune or something like that um so there, there are bits that had some charm and i guess maybe i'm i was in a good mood and i was um i was happy like the other movies were talking about heavy. Oh, heavy and complex <laughs> and and dark. And so this was a little bit of a ray of sunshine, which is bizarre to get a ray of sunshine from David, from Mamet. David Mamet. From David Mamet, but I I I had enough fun with it. I mean, they certainly have probably I have a list of criticisms, I have a list of strengths, but it's, you know, it it did not use your word, I guess, fine. It's fine. which it seems like a it's a bit there's,
1: of a there's so many movies that satirize Hollywood mm-hmm. and the Hollywood machine yeah. that I guess when you see David Mamet's gonna take on Hollywood you yeah. expect that the teeth are gonna come out yeah, right you expect be... that this is just gonna be vicious and it really isn't no it isn't if anything else it's, it's almost like asking to not be taken too seriously the last line of the movie Alec Baldwin is being <clears throat> called to set and he flicks the cigarette away and says beats working yeah And that's kind of the vibe of, like, the attitude of the whole movie to me. This was really easy, right? This was really Mm -hmm. easy. Mamet did not stretch himself. The actors were comfortable. Everybody did well. Focusing on Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we're here to talk about. He's good in this. He's really good in the movie. He's he's playing someone whose life is almost strictly internal, which is really hard. (laughs) Uh, And... Yeah, he's the awkward writer, and he had this great script, and everything that they change makes everything worse. And he's trying to tell himself that he's going to be able to stay the ship, and that you know he's going to keep his. There's a there's a percentage of Barton Fink in him, not yes. not not as pretentious as Barton Fink, but he started with a script that he really loved, and it's been changed so completely now that it's this other thing. And I believe the love at some point moves from his screenplay to rebecca pigeon <laughs> mm-hmm. yes and just the project of her helping him and them bonding becomes mm-hmm. the real win for him yeah there is no win from the hollywood system and we don't know how the movie plays out we don't know if he wins his oscar we don't know how things plan uh, if he decides to stay in the small town or if he drags rebecca pigeon to them we don't need to know
2: yeah uh the 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 gotcha like you, if you've watched enough David Mamet movies there's going to be a gotcha moment oh, really? I think it's this, this one, was yeah. one of the weaker gotcha moments uh, I I think you know we, we think Philip Seymour Hoffman has done this thing which has gone completely corrupted his morals but it was all kind of a misdirection yeah and it was I mean it, fine I guess but it but it just um, it's I, 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 knew, I knew to look for it because I've watched enough David Mamet film specifically, and maybe like his plays are a bit different than that. But uh...
1: I think it was just trying to force more conflict in a movie that really didn't have any beyond big, big Hollywood coming mm-hmm. to small town America. Yeah. But again, I feel like I've been focusing on the negatives. It does have some great lines. Mm-hmm. What's uh, a associate what's an producer? An so somebody that...
2: that you are trying to like pay off. Or <laughs> yeah, you don't respect. It's what you give all. your assistant instead yeah. of a
1: raise. And there's just all these lines and aphorisms and you know old timey wisdom from the town folk. Very mammoth, but without the sort of obtuse, you know, angsty, sort of get under your skin nature that he tends to thrive in. So, uh, it's not awful, but he has made much more interesting movies. Oh, for sure. It was loud, it was
0: rebellious, and in 1966, the British government banned rock and roll on the radio. That's the whole point of being the government. If you don't like something, you simply make it illegal. Until one American DJ... I don't
1: give a any about your limey logs. He's possibly the most famous broadcaster ever. ...and a band of renegades... You
0: must be the Count! I am he. Take me to the microphone!
1: ...launched a radio station
0: on the high seas... We should have set sail years ago. ...and raided the airwaves. Let's have a tune. I'm sick of this silence. I'm the Count. You're listening to Radio Rock as we count down to ecstasy. Rock on! are you doing something dirty? And that was for Erica.
1: Ow! They had millions of fans. A nice young man has lost his virginity. A boat full of treasure. Busy day. (laughs) And the full attention Pirate Radio of the authorities.
0: That will soon be the first person to curse
1: on rock and roll radio. Here it comes. Shut that filth up! (laughs) we're going to shut them down so i said in the introduction that uh i'm one of these cold-hearted cynical bastards who (laughs) love actually makes my teeth hurt i know people make it like a christmas tradition it's got this awesome romantic quality and it's by no means a terrible movie i just i i'm shocked at its classic status it seems pretty pretty slight meal as far as i'm concerned great cast slight meal But this guy has made a bunch of these big comedies in in England and Europe or whatever and a high-profile big cast, uh, Notting Hill or whatever. And I see the technical, like, tactics that this guy is using to elicit emotion. The Boat That Rocked is one of these based on a true story where the quotation marks around the based on a true story (laughs) need to be so, like, definitely bolded, like... No, this is this whole thing is nonsense. There's a crew of people living on this boat doing pirate radio, and we get to know them, we get to like them, we get to see all the fun, romantic, misadventures that they have together. And then there's the corrupt government led by Kenneth Branagh who hates rock and roll, mm-hmm. and we don't really get much uh, insight into their world. That they just they're just humorless, awful, and lame, and they have no fun in their lives. And I would say. About a third of this two-hour movie are mon- is montages. It's just like, there's <laughs> rock music and montages.
2: Everybody in the uh, UK is dancing to whatever <laughs> yeah. they're playing on pirate radio. Different people listening
1: to the radio and shaking their booty. I see everything that this movie is doing. Like, I see it. I see it and I feel it. But I cannot help but be charmed by it. <laughs> like, I, in the way that Love Actually... and I haven't seen Notting Hill, but I imagine Notting Hill was kind of like... Well, make me kind of shrug it off. and it was, I kind of got behind just the good vibes that this movie was trying to present. Now, also to be fair, I've been watching a lot of miserable, miserable movies. <laughs> so maybe this was the antidote that I needed. <clears throat> Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's I think the solo American actor in this uh, in this movie... A lot of great British actors surrounding him, by the way. He definitely brings the heart and soul of the rock and roll. I don't want to say that British people don't know how to rock, but Ry Ziffins plays this sort of competitive other rock DJ, and there's sort of the rowdy American, all right, let's listen to some Aerosmith sort of DJ sort of that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman represents. And then there's the cool, soothing sort of British take on it and philip c is just a better dj like across the board like he brings the rock and the energy he is the heart of that boat mm-hmm. he it's it's a relative of lester bangs in mm-hmm. sort of this pirate radio world mm-hmm. and uh i think he loves that they're doing it uh you know in the open ocean to get away with broadcasting whatever they want to broadcast and he just loves this and en- seemingly endless party but he has this feeling that the party necessarily will have to come to an end. And that's what the movie is all about. And, uh, yeah, just like I said, um, the screenplay is nonsense as far as me believing. The nuts and bolts of it. And most of it are the actors just doing behavior while classic rock music plays. And it does have a really good soundtrack. One of the best uses of Leonard Cohen in a movie. which Like, they use Leonard Cohen too much in movies, but they never used So Long Marianne, and mm-hmm. from the beginning of that song, we have a character in a very dark place, and by the time the chorus kicks in, he's already started to heal, just because he's sitting with his buds <clears throat> listening to music. I love that as a premise. So, <clears throat> even though I see the manipulation, and I see that this is just broadly, you know, sort of swept out for us, the tactics are so obvious that it's hard to be impressed at how the movie is laid out it worked in the end i was charmed i did enjoy watching it so i have to give it a thumbs up but uh and again i i hate to be so dismissive of romantic comedies and i don't think you could exactly call this a romantic comedy but i respect a movie that just wants to put a smile on your face and keep it there and i think that's mainly what this movie maybe a broad comedy yeah. would be yeah
2: yeah what they call it so um one well, of the things about me, and I still go back to this this year where it came out, I actually it, it wasn't a great year for me for movies, but I, I actually went with Love Actually as my my number one movie for that particular year. <laughs> I, I didn't Sorry. I didn't like some of the other Oscar fair that year. <laughs> uh, I, I was really picking holes and all kinds of things. And it was a feeling. Right. And I up until that point, I, I hadn't been really a Christmassy type of a person, right. but there was something in that movie that awakened whatever, and I, I was like... I, I, I left <clears> in <throat> such a good space, uh, and subsequent watches, I was able to sort of ignore some of the strange plot contrivances in there. We're not reviewing Love, actually, but I was trying to say, like um, before that, like I Four Wayne's in a Funeral, I'm a big fan of his yeah. s- screenplay. He, Love actually was the first time he, he went as director, right. writer and director. So, uh, Pirate Radio, I saw the, the coming attractions for it and I was like excited for another Richard Curtis. You know, I didn't, wasn't sure, like, you know, I, I know what he does and what his wheelhouse is. The movie seemed to disappear right away and I, I hadn't actually watched it until this time. Oh, wow. Um, but I was really excited to put it on and check it out and have a good attitude about his style and everything. Um, I had such a miserable time with this movie. Oh, no. I, I, you know, I, I'm trying not to get too negative here, but I, other than the soundtrack and the sheer miracle that Richard Kurz pulled off to have uh, both Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson fun. in the same movie, That's obviously right. shot at different times... <laughs> yeah. um, was those are the only two impressive things I had with this? Uh, <clears throat> Philip Seymour Hoffman, I much prefer as as Lester Bangs. Yeah, this is I think of. It's not a bad performance. Okay, so don't send in your hate mail. <laughs> um, but this was his least interesting character. I thought he could do it in his sleep. There's a lot of him just sitting back and laughing and reacting to all the hijinks on the boat. Yeah which I wasn't interested in. I wasn't interested in this kid who was just kind of dropped off with his uncle, trying to to figure out who his father is, and all that was very convoluted, and they were on this boat, and there's this guy that they haven't... has been there for for months, and they didn't know was there, even though they're playing a... they're listening to music all the time, and this guy's playing music every night in the middle of the night, so I don't... These aren't people who are nine to five people at all so uh, I, I just thought the whole thing was was, was uh, just it's not funny not interesting you have Kenneth Brano you don't give him much to do I uh, you know he's a great actor I know he play he can play big uh, and I mean he, he knew how to play, play this and he does it in a serviceable way but there isn't anything you know interest he's the main villain of the piece and other than like looking miserable at Christmas dinner and trying to get this other lackey to do his he never interacts from.
1: with the rest of the cast his no. whole part of the movie it's a seems whole separate thing. like a separate submarine somewhere else in the in the oh. world and it really never really intercepts he tries to shut them down but they decide to pursue they're already a pirate radio station and <laughs> so and, and, they're already in international waters they're already a pirate radio station and
2: again spoilers for this movie um at the climax, we, we are led to believe that a major character has has died and has drowned. At no point did I think that happened. But if they had actually killed off that character, you would be getting a kinder review from me right now. Because it would actually show that they had... like, he, he, At his best, I know he's known for, for romantic British comedies. But there's always a cynical, dark edge to when Richard Curtis is operating on all cylinders... Four Weddings and the Funeral? It was dark. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, like, the biting comments and the way they would talk about different people. And the reason he wrote the movie, because he was sick of going to all of these stupid weddings every weekend. <laughs> he hates weddings, and he wanted to just kind of rip the whole thing apart. And how and and, and, and that was, a, to me, a, a genius screenplay. And then Love Actually was, a, you know, him broadening and telling all of these different stories. Some of them sentimental, but... There were some moments, like uh, the Alan Rickman subplot in that had some depth to it. And uh, Emma Thompson, who shows up in this for an extended cameo, has a character to play. She's a cartoon in this. Yeah, I mean, she shows up as as kid's mother. and
1: I had seen this before, and I'd forgotten that Emma that Thompson she was, in, it, was yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Now... I love Emma Thompson so that is a difficult thing for me to admit (laughs) and I will concede Jason that the end of this movie with all of the boats Um, coming out to rescue them and and the boats the perfect moment none of this happened like no clearly none of this happened in like the wildest dreams of anybody um and uh I don't know the the movie had I guess at that point sort of shown its feathers to me I kind Mm -hmm. of knew what I what it was watching But yeah, did I really think Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to go down with the ship? No. 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 I think it was kind of silly for them to expect it. And as far as the darkness that you're looking to explore, I think that they hinted at it early with, you know, they they basically ferry in women for the DJs to have sex with, and uh, the one character that Nick Frost plays is being kind of cold, and uh, the... All's fair in love and sex and rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, he goes attitude. and sleeps with that girl. Sleeps that, with the yeah. woman who got married the night before mm-hmm. and sort of shrugs it off as well. I just did it once, right? Uh, no character is really asked to be redeemed or themselves asked for redemption. They just kind of like, yeah, but in the end of the day, we all still like each other for and- some reason. And I also concede, again, like uh, I give the movie a shrugging pass, but I concede a lot of these points. The kid who's on board the boat looking for his father figure Uh seems like, much like I was talking about in State in Maine, that wants to be sort of the beating heart of the picture. And that's the thing that works the least. It doesn't (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you know, it just comes to me I I like a lot of these actors. I like Gemma Averton, she shows up briefly and early Uh in the movie. And I like is it Chris O'Dowd? Yeah, like, Chris, uh, or um, the morning DJ who's like really put upon. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, He's got
2: some charm to him. I'll admit, admit yeah, that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, And I don't know. Uh, it's I'm not foaming at the mouth over. It's no. okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, again, it's unusual for me to have this
2: reaction. Yeah, yeah. it's the opposite of what I. I yeah, I, I thought.
1: Yeah, because again, like. Uh, typically the schmaltzy the schmaltzier you go especially with the comedy the more my teeth start to hurt Mm -hmm. the more i'm like Mm -hmm. yeah this is sweet and sentimental but there's it's nothing real world about it and it's strangely pretending to be (laughs) you know and uh there's nothing real about this movie Mm -hmm. at all and it's all pretending to be based on a true story it's it's just harmless yeah and i mean i didn't
2: have high high expectations but i thought it would be I kind of, kind of like stayed in Maine for me. A smile and a shrug and, well, that was, that was fun. Yeah. I, I, I just really didn't have fun. I'm just coming back from the UK, I guess. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive to, like, nobody acts that way. It's, it, it, you know, you can't get something where, you know, the, they're trying to show that this was a big phenomenon in the, the entire, like all of the countries of the UK we're playing it all hours of the night they have nuns listening to it, they, I, it it's just those montages are so stupid i mean it's well, it's filler for if,
1: and if you don't jive with that like again the montages of different people listening to the radio and this classic rock that's a third of the movie like when it i is. said like that a third of the movie is montages i was not being it <laughs> sure is. it is true and that is lazy like nothing screams this is a movie eating the clock more than a montage and one or two especially in a movie that that spans a lot of time i'm i'm, I'm okay with but they went through well the well a lot they went through yeah. the well a lot
2: i was looking forward to the end of it and when i was about 20 minutes in and that's not a good sign it, right. it went on and on
1: well i don't think we're going to convince each other but again uh first of all i just want to say it's not that i hate love actually it's that I don't love it as much as everyone else does. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a harmless movie. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but uh, for some reason, like from the creator of Love Actually didn't make me go, Ooh, 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 ooh. I'm first in line. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So whereas you might have had heightened expectations, I yeah. had less.
2: I, I didn't expect it to be as good as that because it's a movie that disappeared five minutes after it was released. Right. That's rarely a good sign. And I just watched
1: Capote and this was sort of like... <laughs> like A completely different universe. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. Have you read the article about the killings in Kansas? I think that's what I want to write about. Hello, my name is Truman Capote. I was in Marilyn's apartment just last week. The four Matisse's hang on her wall. Two are upside down. Kansas Bureau of Investigation, KBI. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not looking for any inside information. I don't care if you catch who ever did this. I care. Because since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pegged because of you know, the way I talk, and they're always wrong. You will be stunned by Perry Smith took care of you as a child orphanage it's as if Harry and i grew up in the same house he stood up and went out the back door while i went out the front guilty what is the sentence death When i think how good my book can
1: be i can hardly breathe
0: he'll be dead by september
1: so truman capote you know that very specific Truman Capote voice, which sort of like uh, migrated into just sort of the gay voice for a lot of people, the stand-up uh-huh. comedians or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, there's something about that, the specificity of the character. He's a real guy. He wasn't putting on a show. This no. is what he looked like. This is what he sounded like. But there's been a lot of people who are fascinated by the, the man, and there's been a lot of performances of actors playing the role and sort of embodying Capote. So there's nothing particularly new about, like, doing the, a take on that, this really interesting real-life author. But Philip Seymour Hoffman looks and sounds nothing like Jim <laughs> no, no. Like, not a little bit. I mean, not since they cast, I think, Anthony Hopkins as Nixon has someone, you know, been asked to play a real-life character who just, just doesn't look like no. him at all, like, to any significant degree. And yet he embodies Capote so completely that he won his Oscar for it. It's also interesting that it's not, strictly speaking, a biography. This deals with him and the writing of his... Basically the creation of the true crime genre uh, in Cold Blood. And his friendship with the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, first of all. As well as his uh, friendship with the two killers. Who he interviews repeatedly...
2: The one and in particular. one in particular
1: yeah. he, he feels a real kinship with. And, again, I guess it has a similar vibe. We were talking about State and Vain*, Like, um, these journalists descend upon this small town, and, and it's all changed by the tragedy that takes place. And the people there are originally kind of off-put by Capote, but seem to slowly come to accept him. But I think that the real sort of darkness and heart of the, the movie beyond Philip Seymour Hoffman's really impressive performance is this conceit at some point he realized that the ending of his book is the execution of these two men and that on some level he needs that to happen so that he can finish this book and that at some level he wants this to happen. <laughs> For the sake of his book, mm-hmm. now say what you will about the death penalty. I think that the crimes that these guys did was was so cowardly and so evil that I'm not a big supporter of the death penalty. But I I get it in cases like this. I get where people are coming mm-hmm. from, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in the time and place where this took place, like, these guys were going to ride the lightning. That was what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like somehow Capote managed to get like two thirds of the way through this book before that was real to him.
2: Somehow, yes.
1: And it's so interesting to play because even though this is one of the most famous writers of his generation, it's another portrait of one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's Flawed, Broken. Mm -hmm. It's right, actually, out of his catalogue when you look at that. It's just the physicality and the uh, voice affectation that is, you know, impressively and incredibly different. But when you watch the movie, especially when I've seen it a couple of times now, I realize how close this was (coughs) To Philip Seymour Hoffman And how he might have been able to see No, this isn't ridiculous casting In fact, this is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. So, big fan of the movie uh, For what it is doing in that way As a viewer of cinema This is the kind of movie That as I've been getting older I've had less draw towards Mm -hmm. I am much more into escapist entertainment Horror, fantasy, (laughs) sci-fi Being my mainstay staples Whereas I used to just be greedy and want to eat everything. There's more, this is a more specific meal to me. And it was the cast and the subject matter that kind of drew me over to this sort of Oscar end of the, of the pool. Mm-hmm. But it, it does have that sort of self-importance and uh, that Oscar caliber quality where even the setup, you know, <laughs> establishing shots seem somehow to have weight and importance yeah. in, in the movie. And uh, there's, there's a calculated uh, sheen to this type of, of film. And I don't know, especially watching it the second time, as much as I liked it, I felt that it moved slow to me. I felt, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was movie fatigue, generally speaking, but there's a three hour movie in this. There's a lot of longer, more challenging movies. And for whatever reason, going through this time, Capote felt like more of a sit than it had mm. in the past is it a bad movie no. Catherine Keener does great supporting his work. Peyton yes. Collins Jr. who's very good in this. Been around forever by the way. He shows up in small roles in movies all the time, but uh, he rarely gets something to really sink his teeth yeah. in. And oh my god, does he ever get something to really sink his teeth in? Because I don't think even he understands what happened that night. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's an interesting movie. It's a quality movie. It's a good movie, but again, it's another one of those movies that I feel like everyone likes more than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, and this got him his Oscar, and you watch the movie, and you absolutely understand why. And would I say don't watch Capote? Of course not. It's completely decent, but I'm not foaming at the mouth either. I think it's really good historic filmmaking.
2: Yeah, Let's start there. Yeah, and I'm starting to get what you're saying there about getting older, and, you know, I've been Mr. Oscar bait for years, you know, a bit more than genre cinema, and as I'm getting older, I'm leaning a little bit more to what you're describing, where, hmm, do I want to watch this tonight, or do I want to watch something that, you know, uh, is going to just entertain me and is not as challenging? I think at one point you said that every movie, in some way, is a horror movie. <laughs> Sometimes. And, like, some of those establishing shots, and when we we see the actual murders take place, I mean, it it, it there's a brutality and there's a kind of a coldness to this film. Um, shout out to Canada as well. Winnipeg. It's, Winnipeg is where they shot it. It's supposed to be uh, Kansas in, uh, <clears throat> in the film, but... Uh, I, I was focused on that a lot more. I didn't know that when I watched it in theaters years ago, but looking at this list, I I waited a bit to watch it because I was afraid that because uh, I loved it when I saw it in theaters at a different point in my life, and I thought, well, I, I don't want to see its diminishing returns on a subsequent viewing, and it didn't actually. Like once once I got into it early on, I thought, okay, Philip Seymour Hoffman with the voice, I. You know, this is, and he was executive producer for the movie, so this is like, give me my Oscar now, type of thing, uh, which I sometimes get. But once I got more of the story, I, I forgot about it. Uh, the best parts of his performance are actually the things he does non verbally when he's reacting and seeing something it, it, um, that is changing his world. It is mesmerizing. Uh, it, it's a very good performance. I know Catherine Keener got a nomination for playing Harper Lee. and and has some like is one of the few people who can actually challenge Capote in the movie and so their scenes together are very good but they're also well written Um, and so nothing against her nomination but Clifton Collins Jr. didn't get a nomination and other than Hoffman his performance this time around was staggeringly good.
1: Chris Cooper's really good too but also Cooper's always good and he's kind of a minor more minor role to the movie for me.
2: Yeah. Um, the, the movie he won an Oscar for is actually one of my least favorite of his performances uh, in adaptation. But, uh, yeah.
1: I thought he was really good in that movie, too. But uh, he was good in, in, in the new Muppet movie. He's just a yeah, good... Yeah, he just, <laughs> he just... He's good. Yeah, um, he, he wakes up good. So. I think Harper Lee is good in the movie in that it sort of humanizes and normalizes. Like, this is sort of what he's around someone he sees as an equal, uh, how he kind of interacts with them because he is a little bit intimidated when he's in the prison and he is a little bit cautious when he's dealing with the police and the higher members in the mm-hmm. community. So uh, we get to <coughs> see the difference in how he behaves with someone when he's comfortable and then when he's not. But honestly, beyond that, I don't know uh, what the Harper Lee angle adds to this particular storyline other than no. we get to see Catherine Keener play.
2: <laughs> well, I, and, and there's some piece again, I think it's a well-written movie in the sense that when she has her her moment of triumph like she's basically going along as as his assistant and you know because she can talk to the teenage girl who discovered the bodies when he tries to it's a really awkward really awkward and even that conversation they have is really where he's trying to project some of what she what uh, what what's you know one of the family members experienced to his own life which he does a lot with Clifton Collins as well in the film but um but that moment when uh, they're at the uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird* premiere, and this is like the height of her 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 book, we're little famous. book or whatever, which and nobody could get the title right when they were talking to in the New York elite or whatever. And then it's become this big movie starring Gregory Peck. They're at the premiere, and Capote is miserable, and he gets drunk, and she she goes to talk to him, and he just complains about his life and. And and they got in a state of execution, and he can't finish his novel. Blah blah blah. And she says, "So what did you think of the movie?" movie?" And he doesn't really respond. He responds late after she's left. He's like, "Well, okay, have a good night there." True, and walks away. He can't ignore. He's so focused on himself. Yeah. And I think some people can misread. And the first time I like one, I remember the first time I saw it. A problem I had was in the climax where the hangings happen. Um, and we're seeing these guys uh, killed and, and we see this like four-year consideration reaction shot from Sil- Philip Hoffman tears coming down his, his eyes but I kept thinking this is very disingenuous because he, he wanted as you said he wanted this to happen initially so we could get more story he found a lawyer for them for appeals but then they begged him to find a lawyer for the Supreme Court appeal and he ignores them, and then says, "Oh, I wasn't. I after exhaustive search, I can't find a lawyer." He did no such exhaustive search. He just wants his book to be done. And um, they are
1: guilty, is the thing. Yeah,
2: they, I. They, yeah, they. <laughs> for sure. I. Yeah, but I. I just didn't buy. And maybe there's something more complex going on that I need to watch it yet again. But I, I just thought it, it fe- felt like that's one of the rare moments in there. I think it's well directed by Bennett Miller. He got a Best Director nomination. He got a Best Picture nomination. He was up for a lot of stuff. But uh, the writing was pr- probably better than the direction. Just focusing on that moment a, a bit. And when he's, he breaks down when he's having that last conversation with them. I think it's still about himself. Um, I did
1: everything I could. This yeah. is something that is happening to me. Me.
2: Not to... And he, that's how he treats everybody. Yeah. And those party scenes which feel a little bit like filler are really important because he wants to be the center of attention at all of these parties and all of these events. This is who this guy is. The pacing thing is interesting because I thought it was going to be uh, a slow-paced experience. Um, I I would... it I, Maybe it was the right day, right time. I didn't notice... The pace has been a problem, whereas Pirate Radio couldn't end fast enough, and there's another one we're going to be talking about that, honest to goodness, when we went into this show, I I remembered it being a three-hour movie, and it's a two-hour movie, (laughs) and that didn't change on my uh, subsequent watch of it, so this one didn't feel that slow and that whatever to me, so I think I like it more than you do, but I don't think we're too Too far far apart on, on this, so... There's something... Again, I, f- I feel like a
1: hypocrite, but like... Because like, all movies, especially when you watch as many as we do, you sort of see the tactics or the the things yep. that they're doing. This is the moment. That scene where he has his breakdown in front of them in the jail cell yeah. is the Oscar moment yes, it is. of the movie. And it feels like it. And I think it feels like because nothing else in the movie feels like that Oscar moment. And it's interesting because in the special features, uh, they talk about it, that scene... And Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't want to cry. He was sort of talked into it by the director. Oh, so the and director's he, choice. I didn't know that. he kind of got there, and he found a way to make it work for himself in the mm-hmm. performance. And that's, of course, the tape that they used. But it's that calculation that sometimes part of me mm-hmm. like, resents a little bit. It's just, I mean, if that's what the director wanted to do, what the director wanted, for sure. But like, that, the director felt that Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance wasn't so convincing and transformative already that this... Oscar quote this, yeah. was required, like it was yeah. needed for the movie. bit
2: of over-direction, I, I would say. Like, to me, the, the performance, and I actually wouldn't have voted for him, even though I admire the performance. I, I was kind of a, a Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain uh, right. on that, that, that camp that year, but the, the scene I would go to is when he sneaks into the funeral home, and he opens the caskets and looks at the bodies of the dead family and yeah. realizes and like he's not doing the voice or anything it's just a reaction shot and it's brilliant i would give him the award for the, those scenes and those moments or even that scene i just described with Catherine keener at the at the uh, premiere yeah um th- those are the best parts of it and yeah you're right we didn't need um big music type of uh, and tearful ending
1: i do like in the movie's defense too that it doesn't try to make capote perfect he is flawed he Mm -hmm. is narcissistic he is he was born wealthy and talented he was like a published author before he was 20 yes and in the highest echelons of the culture and circles and wealthy and respected from very young age and none of it was fucking good enough right (laughs) like like Honestly, I, I i think that I probably would have a hard time getting along with such a personality in the real world. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting watching a movie about it
2: Yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. It's going to rank high.
0: I'm just a little person. One person in a sea of many little I'm not a homosexual. Somewhere, maybe, someday. I don't know why I make it so complicated. That's what you do. Away, I hope you through anyway I can. Somewhere, maybe someday, there are millions of people in the world. And none of those people is an extra. They're all leads of their own stories. Person, and we'll go
1: out and play. Kaden. What? When are we going to get an audience in here? It's been 17 years.
0: Say thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome, young lady.
1: So I was in epic fan of charlie kaufman i still am a fan of mm-hmm. charlie kaufman but i wouldn't say i'm an epic fan of charlie kaufman he did a run of movies working with uh, spike jones and michelle gondry right mm-hmm. being john malkovich human nature adaptation and uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and he also did the screenplay for uh, confessions of a dangerous mind yeah and uh so with that particular track record I'm just fascinated. What's this guy going to do? What's he going to bring next? And now he's directing. This is his directorial debut. Synodachi or Synecdoche, New York, depending on who says the title. (laughs) And as I was a huge fan of Kaufman going in, I always felt like they were hard to get your head around, but they were funny, they were imaginative, and they, they felt solvable. They felt like, as you're thinking about it, like... All the pieces of being John Malkovich are disparate, but there is a unit there. There is a theme. There is a trajectory that a character follows. There is something for the audience to take from the movie. Synecdoche, New York was the first time where that absolutely did not happen Mm -hmm. for me. The idea is like he wants to put dream logic into a world that has real-life stakes. So, he still has his real interesting, bizarre Charlie Kaufmanisms throughout the film. And the main character, Caden, is given this, like, I guess limitless funding to do an art project of whatever he wants. <laughs> and he finds a huge warehouse in New York in which he makes another New York. And then within that warehouse, he builds another warehouse where within that warehouse is contained yet another New York. And he wants to make this important art piece. And it studies his entire life with focus on the women in his life. Particularly his romantic relationships and his daughter, Mm -hmm. most specifically. But men don't seem to win place or show a lot for him as far as being important in his life. With the exception of the Tom Noonan character, which is one of the threads of the movie that I actually genuinely liked. But... The thing that I found and continue to find frustrating about Synecdoche, New York, is that, or Synecdoche, however the hell you want to say it, is its obtuseness. Its obtuseness goes right to the title. I don't know what this means. And I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman knows what this means. And I don't think Charlie fucking Kaufman knows what this means. And I've seen a lot of video essays, because I admit I did some research trying to get me some help to like crack in the code in this movie because it could really be like there's some key to it that i was missing that once i see that angle oh why like the veil is suddenly lifted lifted the smoke clears and i'm not necessarily looking for clarity in a charlie kaufman movie but like uh i'm usually energized and excited by it and synecdoche frustrated me And I keep going back to it. It's one of these movies, like I've said about Natural Born Killers, where I keep going back to it, trying to crack it, and saying, this time, I'm going to get it. Because there are concepts that I really love. Like, the idea that this woman's buying a house, and the real estate agent is giving her all the pluses and minuses, and she's like, I am a little bit concerned about dying in the fire. Because the house is on fire, it's mm-hmm. smoldering as she's buying it. Mm-hmm. And we see her grow old in this house, and the fire progresses. It's mm-hmm. like, And I think intellectually, like, the idea of, like, committing to something that you know is a bad idea on some level. Like, there is some philosophical meat to that, and it's absurd, and it's... A, but I don't know how the movie wants us to take it. Are we supposed to question her for this decision? What does it mean? <laughs> we get Catherine Keener back again so we have sort of a mm-hmm. uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener double feature here and I do like her energy in the movie as I seem to always like the energy and
2: she, and she disappears from the movie pretty she's fast.
1: I think the thing the, the, the thing that breaks his heart yeah. that wounds him that makes him want to express this but what does he want to express and does he express it the movie is interesting but frustrating and it sprawls, and it's idea to idea, scene to scene. And the more I watch it, the more distant I feel from it. It's kind of frustrating. Kaufman made another movie after this called Anomalisa. Oh, yes. And he did it with puppets. And I think that helped him in a lot of ways. The characters were still frustrating and, and mm-hmm. selfish and whatever, but that it was putting it in, like, a physically different universe. Somehow he has pushed the weird so far that it's no longer fun. It's just obtuse. I thought I was going to get yelled at for that, but this is where I started the movie. I find it interesting, but I find it equally frustrating. That's where I started. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I would... Maybe, I don't know if this is an odd comparison or not, this feels like a movie I'm supposed to like, uh, much like Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Right. People regularly tell me, what a great movie, one of the great movies of all time. People who like
1: this movie like it a fucking lot.
2: <laughs> they do. You know, <laughs> I've talked to some people, is it among their favorite, or, or if not their absolute favorite movie, um, and I'm always willing to go back and, and give it another try. The first time I saw it, I was, I I, I guess I'm not, I don't worship at the altar of Charlie Kaufman As much as some people I see the chinks in the armor With his uh, screenplays But i they're always creative They're always inventive But I think the key was And because he's earned so much clout he, he basically had a blank check to make this movie And he could have anybody he wants Which not a lot of people with their directorial debut get yeah. um, But uh, I think When he gives his screenplay To another person to direct it's more focused. It's going to be ultimately a better film. Um, but the first time I watched, I, it felt like it went on and on and on. Like, how much time does Diane Wiest narrate I love and, Diane and, and I, I love her, too. <laughs> I but love Diane Wiest. And, yes. and they gave her a little bit more to do because initially I was like, okay, she's cast as this New York actor to play the cleaning lady or whatever. Outside of his ex-wife's apartment, and and uh, and then she volunteers to be the next Tom Noonan late in the film, um, which I, again it's kind of brings a smile to my face. It's, it's ridiculous, but she's obviously older than than Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, and yet we're hearing her narrate the last you know whatever section of his life. Um, and like, where is she? Where is this going on? How I, I and I'm, it's tough for me because it seems like it's it's hyper real because of all the like the family stuff that they have at the very beginning of the film. But then they start. There's these little touches like all these commercials with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in them, um, hints that we're going into the Bizarro world. But most of it's the Bizarro world. But they're still trying to ground some things in reality. And I I never quite got on board. If we're going like full Malkovich or something like that, then I I I can get behind that a little bit more. I but, but this understand one I was
1: stand Malkovich, but I usually had a bizarre smile on my face. Yeah, I laughed during
2: Even it. the parts I didn't like as much, I I appreciated the like the vision and the creativity, but again, Spike Jones I think is a better director than Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Um I don't think many people would argue with, with me on that one. Uh but yeah, I just ultimately had the frustration you expressed. I it's it's a mild thumbs up review. So I, again, this is maybe my state in Maine where I'm sounding super negative on it. Right. Uh, its best qualities are to me the cast, um, the performances. I I, I mentioned Weist in a, I, late in the film. I kind of that section. I, I, I liked it, even though it felt like it went on and on with with her her bit there. But Samantha Morden <clears throat> is an actor I really like and it's been interesting to see her career moving into like The Walking Dead and yeah. different things like that's not, ne- not necessarily She's great in the work, like yeah. uh, we talked about Sweet and Lowdown where yeah. she was so sweet and whatever and there's a little bit of that sweetness in this character here um, but I, and you know she plays an American very well I, I liked her Emily Watson too as this this playing a different version of her and, and when they go to that funeral and then like, the whole lead-up to the sex scene and all that. Like, there, there's some really great supporting performances in here. Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yeah. I, I, I love Jennifer Jason Leigh. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for her in this at all. Um, I, I liked her more in uh, Lisa. Just as a presence, though. Like but, like. but you can get her to just be in a few scenes in this thing. Yeah. This guy can have anybody he wants in this film... Just because of of who he is. Well, I'll tell you but, the truth. If Charlie he,
1: Kaufman asked me to be in his movie. I will, I will be in his movie. <laughs> well, me too, of course. You know,
2: but but at the same time, like like, and again, it's a big cast, and the movie's already kind of bulky. But I I just wanted. I thought some some of the actors got full fledged characters and interesting things to do. Other people just happen to be there. Like basically, she's jennifer jason lee is a german accent and is this artist and she's kind of a two-dimensional and she's the one who corrupts the daughter um
1: but for some reason we focused on her briefly the the movie seems very focused on the female characters in in caden's life like i said at mm -hmm. the beginning like uh, most supporting roles um talking about things that i can latch on to and that i like tom noonan we've talked about the actor before this really tall gaunt guy he was in manhunter and everything like this He briefly became the voice of myself as a frustrated audience member to Caden when he was like, you need to see you and I've been studying you and I can show you what you are so you can see it and you can process it and Mm -hmm. you can, and Caden doesn't seem to respond to that. (laughs) Like this is all his vision. He doesn't want to be told anything. He wants to tell people what the vision is. And it's so interesting how you can see everybody else's flaws so clearly, but not your own. And somehow the Tom Noonan character is trying to make him have this confrontation. And again, this is just me trying to solve the riddle, because this is what the movie is, a
2: series of unanswered riddles, right? The bit goes on too long, though. But, uh, I got, I got tired of his presence in the film, unfortunately. Right. I mean... You know, I, I see the potential in that idea, but... You it, need to see yourself in order to make this great
1: art. And he refuses to see himself, so he can't make great art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter how much the budget, or 20 years or something like this, that he spends
2: without yeah, an audience. Yeah, and like, I'm not sure who can afford to be... Again... They, they give up their lives for, for this guy, and I, maybe some comment on the artist and...
1: But again, like... I think that maybe just fundamentally the basic premise doesn't work. Like, he wanted to have dream logic in a real world stakes. And you can't have your cake and eat it too in that measure. Either what happens within the dome matters or it doesn't. Either we're supposed to, you know, take this world at face value or we're not. Artifice on top of artifice on top of artifice. But it was always, from frame one, dreamlike and ridiculous. It feels like David Lynch.
2: Well, I was going to say, and I would have called, you know, bullshit on you if you hadn't have been critical of this movie because <laughs> I, I I have the same thought on this one that, you know, it's messing with its audience but doesn't actually provide any answers, which for some reason I forgive Lynch and I kind of am having a better time with most of his work Inland Empire, not so much, but this, this is a two-hour movie that felt like four hours yeah. to me watching it and...
1: If you don't have any answers, you don't have to tell us the answers even, but if you don't have any answers, I think that is creatively counterfeit. That is my problem with David Lynch, and that is my problem with this film. I think, like, I had so much respect and got so much out of it, even the weaker thing, even Human Nature, which isn't a great movie. I just, like, it was so original and different that I, I, I have a lot of respect for it, you know? Like, it took a swing, I knew what it was trying to do, what mm-hmm. it was trying to say. And I think if I knew what this was trying to do and trying to say, I could at least say, interesting failure, right? But the fact that I don't even know what he was trying mm-hmm. to say at the end of the day, that feels closer to just a straight failure. But, big swings. Like, it, I mean, <laughs> I do have a certain degree of It's respect. a risky film, yeah. You're in a position where you can make any film you want. Mm-hmm. So, you could do a safe thing. You could make a movie that's going to win you more Oscars. Or you could do something absolutely, completely original and creative. And he did that. It just didn't work 100%. And
2: they said Oscar talk when it came out. He won prizes for Best New Film Director and... Like it didn't kind of turn into anything but uh, I think there's a
1: bit of percentage of smoke and again, I'm sorry, I'm always so shitty. I, I feel similar about David Lynch and when people talk about David Lynch movies mm-hmm. and how brilliant they are, right? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I think this was undisciplined.
2: Yeah. But he needed a he needed somebody to tell him No. Me, no. And um and Spike Jones was a producer on it, so he obviously supported this project but he wasn't directing Well, and and who's
1: going to deliver a Philip Kaufman script better than Philip Kaufman, right? Or or Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman, yeah. Pardon me, Charlie Kaufman. But, you know, yeah. Who's going to do better than he? So, like, I I, I get, I feel like he earned this opportunity, but Uh he didn't slam dunk it. No, no, sadly.
0: How did I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol. What do you do? I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man, just like you. (laughs) He's been writing all night. You seem to inspire something in him. What we will do now will urge you toward existence
2: within a group, society, a family. Good science, by definition, allows for more than one opinion. Otherwise, you merely have the will of one man, which is the basis of cult.
0: And this is where we are at. To have to explain ourselves. For what? The only way to defend ourselves is to attack.
1: You know, you should wake up, Val. Your father speaks, and you might learn something. He's making all this up as he goes along. You don't see that? So, Paul Thomas Anderson, he's made a couple of watchable movies, I guess, in his life. <laughs> I uh, used to give him a hard time, or like we've talked about in the past, where I feel like until he made There Will Be Blood, he was sort of a, not exactly copy-paste director, but his influences were very much worn on his sleeve. But after There Will Be Blood and this one, The Master, like, I can't really compare either of those movies to anything. Like, these are Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and hooray for that. Um even though, ostensibly, the main character of the Master is Freddie Quill, the Joaquin Phoenix character, we yeah. start with him, we anchor with him, we see him being taken in. This is Philip Seymour Hoffman's movie. It's still somehow, uh, you know, it's it's Scientology, but it's not. It's being sort of safe about this cult thing. But what the movie establishes with Joaquin at the beginning is this broken, clearly PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, naval soldier floundering in a world outside of war he's not able to keep a job his behavior is strangely childish and impulsive uh his behavior around women isn't particularly great and uh he is like so many people a lost soul looking for answers and he stumbles upon the cause <laughs> and uh he gets sucked into it you and i did an entire episode on cults. so it was mm-hmm. a pretty good episode yeah. i think and we talked about in one of them, um, I think it was the sound of my voice, how when they do these programming scenes or these vetting scenes or you know the e meters they would call it in the Scientology, it starts to remind me of. Theater work back in my university days, when we're doing like intense, yeah, scene work or absurdist scene work, or where you're you're locking in on another person and you're really staring them down in the soul, in the way you would never do another person in, in in the real world unless you were you know in high stakes drama with them, and the energy of that. Is palpable in the mm-hmm, room. It's mm-hmm. something that you can feel. Even if you're not in the scene, even if you're just watching the scene, it's energizing. And the scenes between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, when he is working the cause, the system... Processing. Him, there, processing that called, him, yeah. Thank you. Um, ...are fucking hypnotizing. They are just so intense and great to watch. And you see Freddie Quill's Commitment. You see him decide to commit, and once he decides to commit, like, he is basically all in. <laughs> like, he is impressed by this guy, and he needs answers, and he does find comfort in the cause. <laughs> all of this is very interesting. But, the, like, it's interesting how the movie doesn't seem to function like a typical narrative no, film not in any all. way we span a large period of time but the thread of the narrative is kind of strange we just jump from moment to moment scene to scene from piece of information to piece of information and we see freddy start to get better and we see freddy start to get worse mm-hmm. and we see him eventually divorcing himself from the, the, cult. the cult let's the call cult. it what it is So I want to get to the elephant in the room. (laughs) We just talked about uh, Synecdoche in New York and, like, what does it all mean? I mean, I think you could say it's an examination of what draws people into cults and how difficult it is to get out of it once you're in it. And I think that alone would be enough. Mm -hmm. But I want to take you on a slow boat to China. (laughs) What the hell happened? In the third act of this movie <laughs> I I cannot decide if it's brilliant Or if it's honestly the screenwriter Just throwing his hands up in the air Painting himself in a corner mm. And he doesn't have a way out So Philip Seymour Hoffman starts to sing And I would be less irritated by this but we've had this fucking conversation before Jason I remember a little motion picture called Magnolia where everybody starts inexplicably singing like and uh, me thinking that was kind of a sour note in that movie Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a sour note in this movie in the same way but I will confess to being completely confounded by it do I like the movie yes I do I think it's fascinating to watch but I do think it is a challenging picture it's it's long, it's not easy on the viewer. It doesn't play, like, it, tactically, it doesn't sort of help you along in your understanding. It's just bear witness. There's a lot to respect here, especially in the performances, but I, I, it's a mixed feeling I end up with.
2: Yeah. I, I, I watched this, and my dad was in the room, and he, you know, he, he watched it too And at the end His comment was What what a weird movie uh, and, Fair And it is a, It is a weird movie um, I'll give you a hint And a big thing On my podcast And on this What what I want to do Is a balanced perspective If it's a movie I I love I want to have Some criticisms of it If it's a movie I really dislike uh, Like Pirate Radio I still want to say I enjoyed the music And a couple Things mm-hmm. here and there To try to have A, a more fleshed out review uh doing my notes and looking over my notes for this to give you a hint i had nothing under weaknesses okay (laughs) nothing um it's a puzzle but unlike the previous movie i think it's a solvable puzzle uh it it and, and i've noticed this with his films like from there will be blood on he is expecting his his viewer to think about um even licorice pizza which is a lot lighter uh About what's gone on and put a few things together And what was this about But, you know, Licorice Pizza has that episodic nature to it as well Which I think is a fantastic film Um, Yeah, I've I've established I'm a fan of Of Paul Thomas Anderson Um, And I I actually think one of my least favorite of his movies Is one you like quite a bit more than I do But Punch Drunk Love But at that same time That's an interesting movie And it's one thought-provoking Watching it this time, <clears throat> I uh, I was really excited to talk about it. I picked up on some different because all the cult stuff and and those scenes you talked about with the processing and going back to like doing Meisner exercises at the University of Saskatchewan and yeah. uh like the methody type of stuff that we would we would do. Um, I, I just loved all that and I was thinking to myself, yeah, this is a veiled Scientology. I can see why so many actors are attracted to this particular cult, yeah. um, if that's what it's about, and trying to get to you know the truth about who you are, and that's how it's sold in in many ways. Even though the truth is that you've lived through all these lifetimes and are millions and or billions of years old, and, and all of these kind of absurd pieces in there. But I, I, this time around, I I was watching that third act, which I think you you're wrestling with a bit, and. I think possibly the message here is that you need to be your own master, and the journey for um, Joaquin Phoenix's character is he then becomes his own master by breaking off from Philip Seymour Hoffman basically playing L. Ron Hubbard, who had become his master, because everything everything that Hoffman tells him to do, he does. We have, speaking of a montage sequence, um, when the indoctrination happens quite intensely, and he spends, what would that have been, a day or two just walking to one end of the room, the other, and saying what, you know, what he feels on the window and then on a wall. And, and, and we see, uh, for a long time, and, and he, he gets to a point where he relies so much on this man, uh, and he's and he's been kind of throughout the film looking for that. But when he breaks away, when he makes that decision to drive off in the motorcycle, and then he goes and he actually faces his trauma with this uh, this girl that he never went back to see in his hometown uh, due to his PTSD and everything and after of the course war. She's not waiting for him. No, no, <laughs> yes. no. Um, <clears throat> and and then he you know he he decides kind of to to live his his own life and i think that was like the step i'm not sure that this this guy isn't right at the end of the movie but he's on probably a better course moving forward than he was certainly the beginning when we see he's going from situation to situation and he's described as an animal and Phoenix is so good at playing that he's violent, impulsive, yeah. sexual, yeah, gruff. But I want to talk about the sexuality also for a moment too, because what's interesting if you follow the entire film, he he's regularly trying to have sex, you know, whether it's members of um, you know of, of the cult. Or that that, 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 when he's good. a photographer in the department store. Yeah, that was a but, cringy scene. Yeah, <laughs> and, but then he falls asleep on their date or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it seems like a r- really a gratuitous sex scene at the end of the film. But that's actually the first time that he has sex in the film. He's finally released whatever it is that this tension with himself and found a woman that's interested in him. That He can move forward with, uh, he, and maybe that's, that's what he needed, not all of this other stuff that he has been has a gone real or
1: symbolic release. And yes, there is no release from the cause, you no. are sucked in, and then you are there. Yeah, I took it. My take on it is slightly different. I, I, I guess I took more literally that Philip Seymour Hoffman thing everybody has a master, you just have to choose which master you follow. He says it, yeah. Uh, he's he also philip seymour hoffman is led by his wife amy adams kind of she's quietly, the power yeah. quietly rules him <clears throat> yeah and uh, she's good in the movie like yeah
2: different role for her for sure
1: yep um it was I, I thought that was well played and interesting like she is the power but she's the power quietly in order to maintain the power she lets him think that he that is, is, is the, the power. power. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, that that i thought was great but yes uh on some level, Philip Seymour Hoffman understands this, but as long as he gets to be the master, he's happy to play mm-hmm. that role. But, yeah, that was sort of my take. Everybody needs to, you know, but choose your master carefully, I guess is more the more the idea. But, like I said, the idea of why you would be seeking these kinds of answers and how you would be susceptible to the cult, absolutely. You can see and how it would work, yeah. The slow rot and seeing how... You know some of the smiles in this cult are increasingly face fake having the master's son tell you that he just made He's this making this up, up yeah which jesse flemonds who's great actor yeah, and different. that was the scene that cost uh paul thomas anderson his relationship with tom cruise apparently uh I,
2: yeah i was gonna get into that a little uh, bit, yeah.
1: he showed him the uh, the movie before it oh did he really released and apparently he was okay with most of it, but the scene with Jesse Clemens, because that is ripped directly from Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard's son said Elron Hubbard made all of this shit up, flipped Tom Cruise's switch and he was yelling. He was not happy about it. I I don't know that they're not talking, but I know like Tom Cruise takes his faith very fucking seriously. He does. So um and I, they haven't worked again since I don't
2: think. No, they only worked on Magnolia. Now I had a slightly more insidious take on things. I don't know. It's completely factless. It's just my my theory was... I do that all the time. (laughs) Yes. My theory was, you know, Anderson had this movie in mind a while ago. He cast Tom Cruise in Magnolia, and because Philip Seymour Hoffman was in one of the Mission Impossible movies as well, the two of them together, because he was really a muse for for Paul Thomas Anderson, and now he's using Cooper Hoffman in his movie, so, I mean, there's a connection there, but he... The two of them went along with Cruz for some of the processing through Scientology research. as research for this film, knowing all along they were gonna make this movie. Yeah. And so they were kinda using Cruz and that experience. Now that's my my theory. I don't know. I'm completely
1: very easy to believe
2: though. Very yeah.
1: easy to believe. Um and that angle is very interesting and does work for the movie. And the movie gets a thumbs up review. But is it a four star or a five star Well, I really wish I could like, be more comfortable with the end of this movie like, yeah, I... do, it, does that make sense to you does it just seem like he has run out of things to sell like Joaquin Phoenix on he doesn't know, he doesn't know what more to say and this is his absolutely desperate Hail <laughs> Mary pass I have no idea this is me just trying to solve it because I do not understand that mm-hmm. choice I will choose to respect it but I don't understand it.
2: Yeah, I I think, and it's it's hinted earlier on when they're having that family meeting, and there's hypocrisy in that family meeting oh, yeah. about what a problem Phoenix is, uh, and they all want to sort of be rid of him. But but Hoffman wants to work harder, and we 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 cannot give up on this guy. And then he puts so much of his energy and time into him, and still. It, it still it doesn't work, right? And so when, you know, um, when he comes back, it's just there's too many other people, uh, in the many universes that I have to save. I, I I can't I can't do this again. But it is interesting that scene that is Amy Adams who gives the you know no. goodbye. Yeah. You know why are you here? You're you're drinking, you've always been the same. Yeah. You're you're not going to change. Um. But I. I, I still think, you know, I still think he, he wishes that he could still work with him. Like, if it was his choice, but it's it's become his wife's choice. Yeah. Uh, and we, we have moments where he's singing already in the movie. We have that interesting, and again, it goes back to the, the, the this lust and this animalistic, you know, sex obsession that Joaquin Phoenix has where we're we're watching this scene where everybody presumably would be clothed and uh, he's fantasizing that everyone's naked every woman is naked yeah. all the men are are dressed that's you right. see but every woman is is you know um, is naked in there and uh, and that's what's on his mind like he he can't stop drinking he can't stop thinking about sex and no matter how much programming they do he's just that's still there. you know but I I was wowed when I saw this in the movie theater high 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 on my top 10 list it it still is I mean I would have a tough time if we did a rank of um, Paul Thomas Anderson movies it would rank very high I would have trouble where where to go because I've loved so many of his films everything from The Master on to me has been a, a modern day classic so
1: absolutely worth watching anything yeah. that he puts his name on I, again like I don't always think he hits it out of the park but it's <clears throat> Never been not worth my time. And
2: maybe a controversial statement, particularly with Joker and some other performances under his belt, but this is my favorite Joaquin Phoenix performance. He is really good. This is the one I kind of thought he, as much as I I was happy he won for Joker as well, but I think he could have won for this.
1: The specificity to the performance, too. He got some uh, plate put in his mouth. Yeah. So it would clench his teeth, and so he only talks yeah, out of the yeah, one uh, side of his mm-hmm. face for the whole movie. And he really commits to it, but it, there's something about that that's sort of... It's a physical affectation, but it bespeaks something internal being deeply off about him. The
2: physicality of the character, how he walks, and, and, and knowing how how method Phoenix is. Yeah. Like, we, we know he goes there, and everything that we see on screen, he is doing... And uh, and the, yeah, watching him and Philip Seymour Hoffman, I, I would pay any money to see those two. If it was just watching those processing scenes for for two three hours, yeah. it was just that I I would
1: pay for that. Those scenes are worth the price of admission oh, alone. They're so me. good. I like, it. not that the rest of the movie doesn't have a lot to it, but those scenes are just oh, the like...
2: intensity of it. Like Phoenix's facial expressions and. And slapping it, but, himself. Well, yeah, and the <laughs> where he has to keep his eyes open when yeah. he's answering the questions. Yeah. That that is such a great scene and well written, well directed, and I'm a huge fan of this movie. Not a big surprise to you, yeah. I'm sure.
1: So it's a puzzle, but it's worth puzzling over. I think it is. And, yeah. Unlike another movie we talked about, yeah. I do think it's solvable.
2: Yeah.
0: Dear yeah. Mr. Harwood, I am eight years old. I have a wished this cold. Oh. It would be great if you could write back and be my friend. Dear Mary, thank you for the letter. I have never met anyone from Australia. I share my home with a fish, a parakeet, an invisible friend called Mr. Ravioli. People often confuse me. I have trouble understanding them. Maybe this is why I don't have any friends.
2: Dear Max, in your
0: letter you said you had no friends neither do I. Can you help me? Dear Mary, do you like chocolate hot dogs? Ah! Where do babies come from in America? Do they come from collar cans? do <laughs> you got a girlfriend, Max? Can you explain love? Be a creep! I find the world very confusing and chaotic. Ah! <gasps> Dear Max, I don't think my parents like you. Yeah! People often think I am tacked with some rude. I cannot understand how being honest can be improper.
1: You are my best friend, my only friend. All right, Mary and Max. Uh, This is a stop-motion animated film from Australia and uh, voice talent of Tony Collette, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Eric Bana. And um, I'm going to admit that this movie kind of hits me in specific feels areas. I, I love the method of, of stop motion, you know, the mm-hmm. clay figures being moved a frame at a time and yeah. photographed. I, it's such a meticulous and beautiful and specific type of animation. I have a soft spot for it. I like lame stop motion animation just because <laughs> I like that sort of style of animation. I like movies that are talking to kids that are about growing up which this very much is and I like movies that don't talk down to kids Mm -hmm. and uh the main character uh is a 44 year old Jewish man who suffers from Asperger's who's having a pen pal relationship with a nine-year-old girl well this when they start she's nine and he's 44 but they've and she starts it. She... she writes a random letter that she picks an address out of a New York phone book to ask some questions to an American that she has about being lonely and about what it's like there. And some confirmation. She doesn't have a dad and her mom's a drunk. She lives uh-huh. uh-huh. a very dark childhood. <laughs> uh-huh. um, anyway, so she just randomly sends this letter. And it arrives in this guy's mailbox. And he has such a private, personal, compartmentalized, necessarily controlled existence that even this letter from a little girl really throws him for a loop. It's actually interesting how one side of the the letters being exchanged, the little girl is excited and enthusiastic and can't wait for the next letter and can't wait to write the next one. But for him, as much as this is a great thing for him, this relationship might be one of the most true and important relationships he has in his life. It's incredibly stressful. Uh Every question she asks has the weight of life or death to him and one letter actually commits him to the hospital for eight months it's an incredibly fragile thing they're dealing with the horrors of being a child and being in a terrible situation and not knowing it because you're a child and the horrors of being an adult and in a terrible situation but not knowing it because of your mental illness and how these two people connect from the other side of the world and not to spill my hand cards I I just think it's absolutely beautiful and I think it's unsung like nobody talks about this movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's rated G and I honestly think it should be rated PG Yeah, there's adult content grown up things happen consequences happen and it's not a fairy tale you know The little girl grows up to write a book about this guy, and it doesn't bring them closer, and it doesn't bring her riches. The little girl spends her childhood obsessed with the boy across the street, and it's not a mutual thing. (laughs) And it's deep and dark and complex, and it's for kids, question mark. But I think it's amazing. I really, really liked it. I was moved by it. And uh, I was moved by it the first time I saw it, I watched it again for this, movie, the, this list. With all these complicated, big, three-hour, mm-hmm. bold, epic, ambitious movies. This is the one that rang tears for me. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but again, something very specific about this hits me. I could identify with the little girl, and I could identify with the old man. And the old man, is voiced by Philip Seymour Hoffman, sounds nothing like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Not at all. And... It's a completely realized character. And when I say, like, yeah, it's just a voice performance. Why are we talking about a voice performance in this tribute to Philip Seymour-Hoffman? Because it's amazing. So I'm a big fan of Marion Max.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I was afraid of that. Uh Um, Okay, so I'll start off with... For whatever reason, and I've been trying to work on this, animation has me at a distance. I think it's a harder sell for me as a viewer... Um, other than like Studio Ghibli films are fantastic, and a lot and a lot of Disney films still have that sentimentality. I mean, not a lot of the recent ones as much. Uh, you know, I haven't watched a lot of these ones that they're they always talk about. But um, the 2D like the the, the drawn animation, um, I, I I like and I'm impressed with visually stop motion. Right. But I I can't say that there's one that's you know. Oh, this is the movie that, you know... It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Have you seen My Life as a Zucchini? No, I haven't. But maybe it's I need to really check it
1: out. Room. I can... I, I, I love this medium. Yeah. I love adult I can see sto- why. I love adult stories for kids. Uh, it is yeah. really a soft spot for me. Sorry, please. Yeah.
2: Um, and so I thought, okay... Th- this will potentially feel like homework to me. Sadly, it was homework for me. Uh, it was the last one of the six that I watched here. Um... And so I thought, okay, maybe it's not for me. And we've talked about this before, about reviewing the film and thinking about, okay, who it's for, what's the intention, and is it successful? And I thought, okay, well, it's for kids. And so kids are going to enjoy it. But as we got more and more into the film, I wasn't completely convinced that it was for kids. It might be for kind of if they were willing to watch it pre-adolescent or maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think even maybe a stretch nine and ten. I don't know, but uh, I don't know if you get too deep into the teenage years unless they're interested in making movies themselves. If they'll go for it as much, um, so I found it a little bit not great. I, I didn't see it, and by the way, I'm 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 a childless person. I have a niece, but I yeah. and she's well way too young to watch anything right now, but. Um, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about as a as a single guy here, but I, I didn't see how this was for kids, particularly kind of with the lib- liberal use of a few terms that I, I and I get that it's said in the 70s and 80s and uh, that the R word would be used a lot, but there, that that keeps coming up and things about the the news, you know, when he. Uh, you know when he wins the lottery or he gets committed or at all these news stories or he's he's up for a murder charge or whatever uh they always use the r word to describe him in there i mean i know it's it's used for a purpose but um i i just thought that could be misinterpreted in the way that kids use that word uh then when they shouldn't now and then i i kept thinking okay then then maybe it's for certain adults and i'm glad that it's for Larry. Yeah. So now I know, you know, Larry liked it, and I'm sure lots of people liked it, and I could see the reviews were, were good for it. And It's like seen. Hitting, the people who did not watch gem. it seemed to like it, but you know? not a lot of people. And, and I love, like, in, uh, Australians uh, are great at animation, yeah. and uh, and I love Australian films as well, and I love Tony Collette. Um, what I clung to, I, I kept looking forward to Philip Seymour Hoffman's letters, because that is where the movie worked well for me. Yeah, when he's doing his, uh, the voiceover narration and, and reading those letters, I was engaged. But at no other point in the film was I, as an adult, it wasn't working for me as an adult. And I don't know if it's too kiddish for adults, uh, but too adult for kids. But I might be, as you say, underestimating kids and and, and what they yes. what they can handle. Um, and so I, I feel like this is not my area of expertise. So maybe my criticisms are just subjective and my, my own.
1: Yes and no. I think that the, you can go too hard with it. A movie that I love mm-hmm. that was aimed at kids, which I don't think is a kids movie, is Spike Jones' Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah,
2: that's a, that's a bleak film. Yeah.
1: That's, I think it's a great movie. It is. But not for kids. No. I don't think the kids would get it. They didn't, I think no. that kids would get this. I think they might not fully identify with the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. The girl. But the little girl, <clears throat> especially like, the her mom's horrible. The movie doesn't mm-hmm. like make a point of vilifying her. Her mom is just her mom. But her mom is horrible. Mm-hmm. And that's how kids view it. They don't think mom's an alcoholic bully, right? They just think mom is mom and this is what mom does. And they show that behavior. And, um, I think in another worse version of this, you know, we would have seen the darkness and this abuse and this, mm-hmm. we can tell that she's neglected. We can tell that she's lonely. And just by the questions she's asking, like, where do babies come from? Yeah. And how do you get a boy to like you? Like, she can't ask her mom this. No. She's asking... This middle-aged man in New York, yeah. Who she doesn't know completely just sent a random letter into the universe. It was the equivalent of putting a letter in the bottle and throwing it into the ocean. Other thing about this is that it purports to be based on a true story. I don't know how true it is, and part of me doesn't want (laughs) to know how true it is. Um, But the fact that they put it in this sort of landscape with the stop motion Mm -hmm. animation and the characterizations being very cartoonish I think lends it more the feel of fantasy Mm -hmm. which I think helps it I think that it would have been absolutely devastating to play too overtly straight and that's the thing is that it's a sad movie at the end and Mm -hmm. you know it's not quite old yeller traumatizing bittersweet I think I would say
2: Bittersweet is good for but, um yeah, but it's it's tricky, but I was trying to think like if I show that to a kid like what like I am mean, spoilers for the movie, but we, we, we have we have one of our main characters is a corpse, and the other one is sitting there holding his hand holding his hand with a baby, and is like it's like which which kids am I recommending this <laughs> movie to uh and the and and the more um or would be, this is a little bit more of the school teacher in me, would almost be afraid to show this to a high school or early high school class, which I think might get some of the ideas a little bit more, because I could hear kids at the back showing, he's a pedophile, you know?
1: <laughs> I, like. Well, it's an interesting relationship, like a relationship between a 44-year-old man and a 9-year-old girl, mm-hmm. of course, separated by an ocean, and neither of them even having the slightest inkling of a sexual no, relationship. No, not at all, no. At all. It never crosses either of their minds, ever. And mm-hmm. consequently, it doesn't us. But as a descriptor, I suppose, yeah, the story of a little girl who's a pen pal with a 44-year-old man seems mm-hmm. kind of strange.
2: And his only friend is this, yeah, <laughs> young girl from Australia, but...
1: It's... And full disclosure to, I guess, to be honest, I have an autistic child. Uh, he's obviously, you know very different like they say you you meet an autistic person you've seen one autistic person you don't know the whole breadth of the of the mm-hmm. sweep of it but just the idea of the the loneliness and the difficulty that these people you know deal with on a daily basis and how it's their own private battle and that this little girl makes it not a private battle for mm-hmm. him anymore and I, I i love the struggle with the letters like i said before like He reads the letter, and then he has a full-on panic attack. Mm -hmm. And then he thinks about how he's going to write the letter. But when he does write the letter, and when you hear the letter he writes, it's
2: amazing. Yeah, relief. Like like he writes an essay to her every time. And it's it's clear, it's
1: concise. He is expressing himself Mm -hmm. like he never does. It's incredibly difficult for him. It's Mm -hmm. incredibly stressful for him. And it's incredibly good for him. Mm -hmm. They are good for each other. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it is dark. I I won't lie. And I watched this by myself. I didn't watch it with the kids, and we pick a movie night every weekend. I don't know how quickly I would rush them into this one. Some of it might hit close to home, and it is, it's Mm -hmm. it's sad. But the sadder ending is the ending where, you know, Max never met Mary, and he stayed in that apartment, and he probably died 15 years sooner. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it, it's personal, but it definitely works for me. And like I said, this specific area, there's a lot of interesting movies uh, uh, about it where they're making a movie for kids that have some of the biggest philosophical themes mm-hmm. of any movie, and they're aiming it at the single-digit age category. Mm-hmm. That is a tough thing to do. And for me, they did it here.
2: Yeah. And I would say, like, if the, the, the strength of and, and how they get to the reveal... Of the Aspergers is um, it is really clever, and it makes a lot of sense why we were seen because it's almost felt like it, some things were played a little bit big for comedic or animated effect. Um, but then it, it it makes sense, and so at the same time we we get that and and I I loved in a world being a world where I show this film as as a piece of awareness, right? Okay, so this gives you an idea of how how the world is perceived. Um, to uh, somebody who is on, you know, the autism spectrum, let's let's say, yeah. um, and and to educate kids, I just don't know if the kids would get it until they're older. But I think they almost have to get through some sort of like the cynical adolescent years, and then maybe kind of late teens, early twenties, they start to appreciate it if they're willing to watch something like this, but. I, I don't know if it's necessarily directed at adults. And maybe that's why it hasn't, you know, right. it isn't, hasn't caught on as much as I kept trying to figure out, all right, who is the target audience? Because initially I thought it was just kids, but then it went into some places where I started to question that. I'm like, okay, this isn't for me. I don't know which kids I would, would show this to. Uh, I don't think it's for teenagers I'm trying to figure out where's the sweet spot for this one, to gauge whether it was successful or not. It worked for you, and so maybe you're you're the target audience. 40 and 40 then I though. should be mm-hmm. I should be giving it more of a thumbs up. But subjectively, for me, I think I maybe started at a little bit of a distance from the film. And other than Philip Seymour Hoffman, the some of the ideas are interesting, and other than Hoffman's amazing voice work, yeah, like He's I mean the, the energy. And again, I, I was more excited for his letters, and I gl- I was glad his letters were longer. Yeah, I I'm, not sure, I'm not sure about Tony Collette, wonderful actor. I, I wasn't as interested in, in Mary or Mary's story at all. If the movie was just about Max, um, well, I might have been more of more invested. I guess I'm
1: I'm a little bit surprised, but like I said, I I knew that this movie was hitting me on a personal level. Mm-hmm. But I just found it warm and charming and silly. Like, I the idea that you thought it felt like homework. It's an 85-minute stop-motion movie yeah. full of life and charm. Like, that surprises it, me. It, it
2: felt... Uh, it's not longer, by any means. I know it isn't, but it felt longer, a longer sit and a longer watch for me than The Master and Capote combined, hmm. which felt like long sits for you, I think.
1: Well, we're just going to have to respectfully disagree on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is gonna be an interesting rank of movies because mm-hmm. like we both talked a lot of shit but we both seem to have a lot of respect and it's weird how my rank is not going to exactly reflect my comments in some degrees mm. but i have i'm confident we're not gonna go no there's no way six. on earth no there's a real chance of going zero for six but there is no chance of going six for six so uh that's okay. We're allowed to disagree. Fully respect. We both agree that Philip Seymour Hoffman was great in all of these movies. Yeah, And it was a major loss. Just... And look at the range. Look at the range just in these six movies. Yeah. It's, yeah. This, like, again, they're all in a, they're different, somewhat difficult way worth your time. So let's start there, agreeing. Yeah. And now you can tell me your stupid wrong list. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't I don't know how you feel about numbers. Well, yeah, you're gonna you disagree with me on most of this. So I'm, I don't know. We'll we'll see how this goes. Um, uh, my my least favorite was Pirate Radio. Hands down, I had a miserable time. I had some expectations, not overly high expectations. I I didn't find it funny. I didn't find the characters charming. I think of the six performances, not that Hoffman's bad, but I think this was his worst of the. Um, or it was within his wheelhouse He'd already done a version of this Much better and almost famous So that's number six uh, For me and I Again I like Richard Curtis and I cheer for him As a filmmaker uh, I'd love to see him do something Something else and I will Pay to see anything he does But this, this really was a Disappointment to me Massive disappointment uh, Five I know we're really going to disagree on this one And again I just I mean, I'm going to chalk it up that this was not a movie for me okay Mary and Max is fifth for me which might seem unkind at how low it is um but it it just wasn't uh for me those are the two that I would have my thumb down for the other ones I like but it was just kind of uh just varying various scales of how much uh like to love I guess right so the New York is, is fourth for me um Big ideas, complex ideas. This feels like a movie that should be in the top one or two, um, but I and I've given it another try, and I'm sure I'll give it another try another time. But I, I find it a very frustrating movie, um, and I was happy to say that to uh, see that we were kind of in agreement about that, and the thought that there maybe aren't answers to this film. Yet I know people who love it. Yeah. And I guess it's like me with the Lynch movies where I love them and you're frustrated by it. So that's, that's fine. But that's four for me. Uh, number three, not as complex, but I, I just had a good time with it. Um, not as deep as these other ones, but stayed in Maine. Um, I liked the comedy enough. I liked enough of the characters, uh, great actors, um, and even some of the lesser actors I got enjoyment out of. I like Rebecca Pigeon more than you do. Uh I, I would call this yeah, you're right, it's lesser mammoth in a sense. Yeah. Um if I was given a choice between the film version of Oleana and State in Maine, I would actually choose State in Maine, even though that's a little bit more of uh Oleana's... Oleana
1: was meant for the stage. Yeah, the it's
2: it's so um but I think this is a this is good and it's you know, he, he does a few different things that he hasn't done before, but much softer mammoth, so I liked yeah. it. Um, number two for me is Capote. Uh, I I went in thinking that it was going to be homework, and I got dragged into the story pretty early on again. And, you know, the time went by fast, and I was just admiring the writing, uh, most of the direction, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, and Clifton Collins Jr. as well. I'm not sure I fully appreciated how good he was the first time I saw it, this time just Every note is pitch perfect for that it's hard guy, to see past and he's Philip
1: Seymour Hoffman the first time. Oh yeah, how,
2: how, how could you? But uh, this is a guy who shows up in a lot of roles, but he's never been given a role this good, and I think it's his hands down his best performance. So um, again, and I'll watch Capote again. It, well, someday I'll review it on my show too. I have a Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> nice. theme show as well too, which I'll do some sometime in. In the distant future, but obviously, number one for me is Paul Thomas Anderson's the master. Right? Um, yeah, I I don't know. Maybe I'm a sucker for Paul Thomas Anderson, and I I'm being uh, taken by a you know a, a great showman here. But it like I just love from early on, before we even meet Philip Seymour Hoffman or see the cult stuff, I'm fascinated by Joaquin Phoenix and this guy and his journey from the war and. And going from one place to the other. And what I love about Paul Thomas Anderson movies is I get lost in them. I don't know where they're going. I cannot predict where they're going. And I kind of like that. So like that's
1: my list for me the most messy Paula Thomas Anderson movie like Magnolia is still totally worth your time right, right? like that might be my least favorite of his movies but I would not tell anyone not to watch Magnolia yes like, and if that's the worst movie that you made like okay oh I can live off of that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, that's my worst movie. We're, we're gonna be fine yeah. we're gonna be fine uh shocker we have different lists um I kind of knew that I just assumed that Paul Thomas Anderson was gonna be number one for you quite correctly um <laughs> But we're going to start off in agreement. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time with Pirate Radio, <laughs> but I didn't like myself for like. <laughs> you know, like, I saw that the movie was full of shit. I saw that I was being manipulated. I saw how uh, off balance the narrative was. I saw that it was built out of montages. But I kind of shrugged and smiled. I don't know if it was just the absolute right day for me to watch the movie or what. But even saying all of that like I, I recognize it is what it is which is mm-hmm. pretty pretty slight the cast has a lot of charm to it and mm-hmm. the cast goes a long way all the way in 5th place and the 5th and 4th place were the ones that I wrestled mm-hmm. with but I put Synecdoche or Synecdoche New York because I honestly believe that it is without an answer I do mm-hmm. think it is a mystery without a solution and that that's baked into it is a I think possibly fatal flaw in the movie. That said, I think there are a lot of isolated scenes and moments and ideas that are in the movie that are interesting and that I like. But the movie is as much frustrating as interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that it just I have to put it in fifth place. State and Maine is lesser mammoth as we have keep on saying, but lesser mammoth is still kind no, of David interesting Mamet, right? And he does have those great Mamet-Zinger lines and he does have these actors who are absolutely precise in mm-hmm. how they deliver them. They're like... Um, what's his face? Um, from Fargo. Oh my God. Uh, uh, this will be edited. William H. Macy. Yes. William H. Macy has been working with uh, Mamet since like the late 80s on stage. Early and, theater, like, yeah. He knows how to do this. So yes. like, I just like watching him deliver these lines. Yeah.
2: But, he keeps referring to the broad as Sarah uh, Jessica Parker. Yeah. Just all these mammoth he, he He can do it so well.
1: I once did a uh, zombie play for The Fringe. Uh, the <laughs> Creeping Zombie Insanity. My friend Rob and I put it together. When we got hired to do it, we had seven weeks to showtime. So we wrote, starred, produced this play in a dead run. And it wasn't great, but I mean... I con- saw the show and I enjoyed it. Yeah, too. it wasn't great, but we... For, for for what we did, you know, I feel like State in Maine is like David Mamet's version of that. Like he could have written this script in a weekend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, like a lot of people would have stressed over it or like felt to dig a little bit deeper, but you no, know, this was easy for him. And for that, I kind of uh, resents the wrong word, but that's why it's lower tier mammoth for me. In third position, I have Capote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, I started off with my negatives or like sort of my resistance to it, but it's more this type of movie. I kind of, as much as the, the great qualities, please watch Capote. This movie was made to to win Oscars. That was the goal, <laughs> like when it set out. I like a movie whose goal is just to be an entertaining movie,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: there's something about the calculus that goes into these movies. We need to get this kind of pedigree actor and we need to tell this type of story and we need to have these type of moments.
2: But it's an interesting story nonetheless.
1: All of the things that they added are interesting ingredients and that's why these movies win awards. But I felt the calculation to a degree. And that's what's. makes it was makes only me... in
2: that last sequence I yeah. you know not it's only it's, like, it's completely. the smallest
1: resistance, yeah. to That's that's sort of my complaint about the movie. Yeah, for sure. Second place, The Master. Mm-hmm love it love it love it especially for the performances almost mainly for the performances it is a challenging movie but it's not obtuse i have issues with the ending i will puzzle over the ending but i will revisit the ending Mm -hmm. so it's fascinating it's rewatchable check it out everybody's entitled to their own opinion on the master and that's sort of part of the interesting thing about and it and some people would hate it I can and see it,
2: people not liking it some yeah. people
1: find it difficult yeah. I get that but uh, I think it's worth the conversation absolutely mm-hmm. Mary Max yeah made me get the feels and like um, part of me wants to send you home with like uh, <laughs> uh, this other stop motion movie uh, My Life is a Zucchini just to see if you don't like that then this just isn't your thing and that's fine you know you, everyone's a lot of people don't like a lot of things that I'm into but I love the heart I love the feels I love the ambition and it's a difficult story being told to a young audience and um yeah I have personal reasons to be connected to it but that Philip Seymour Hoffman character was strangely profound to me mm-hmm. and uh he's not he's not speaking on behalf of everybody with Asperger's this is a very specific story about a very specific yeah. character but it 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 both warmed and broke my heart. So number Yeah. One. Fair enough. Thank you so much for being here and I will continue to mourn the loss of Philip Seymour. Yeah, me too. And so another fun-filled edition of Rankin Review comes to a close. Big thanks to Jason Dubray for being here. And once again, another plug for his shelf-shedding movie show. Do put your ears to that podcast. It is worth your time. Of course, Jason Dubray shall return again to Rankin Review for further arguments and further ranks. Uh, always a pleasure to have him on board. I would also welcome feedback from my listeners at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's r a n k n r e v i e w at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And do tell that other movie freak in your life about Rank Review. Thank you so much for listening.